Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, okay? Now if you remember chapter 13 verses 1 through 6 when we met last time, he had these five very practical ways to live a life of worship. Number one, brotherly love. Number two, hospitality. Number three, remember those in prison and who were mistreated. Number four, sexual purity through marriage bed being honored. Number five, keep yourself free from the love of money. Okay? Now, he's going to shift gears from, like, in, those are like all individual issues, personal, individual. I mean, there, there were issues that related to interpersonal relationships, but ultimately it was more individual. Now he's going to shift gears to what is a vibrant, faithful, obedient church look like? Okay? Um, now, what happened here? Some, some, some slides got out of pa- What? Well, no. Okay. So, somehow the slides got messed up. So um, I will go off what's on my sheet. If it's on the screen, so be it. Um, so from this passage of Scripture, we see what I would consider eight characteristics of how the book of Hebrews would define a vibrant, faithful, obedient church. Now, let me just stop and ask you a question. Do you not want our church to be a vibrant, faithful, obedient church? No, we want to be dead and lifeless and disobedient. So the question is, okay, if this is what a a faithful church looks like, an obedient church looks like, what does it look like? So let's read together um, Hebrews 13, 7 through 25. Actually, let's read through um, verse 19 because there's the benediction. But we'll just read um, chapter 13, 7 through 19, and then we'll unpack these eight characteristics of what a faithful church looks like. Okay, so here's number, here, here we go, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, at first glance, this may not look like a a list of of what a healthy church is, but what I want us to do is to dive into these issues that he talks about, and let's just look at these eight characteristics of a healthy church. And So here's number one. A faithful church imitates the faith of godly leaders who've gone before them. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, these leaders that he's talking about are probably those who founded the church, the original pastors, leaders, maybe even the missionaries. Go back to chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3 He's talking about drifting, if you remember that, being disobedient. Um, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So probably the original leaders of this church were either, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, and we don't know who these leaders are, but it was probably leaders who started the church, led them to faith, planted the church, but now they're either dead or they were martyred or they're in prison. Okay, Because he's going to talk about later on the current leaders. Remember, and that whole idea of um, their outcome of their way of life, that word outcome really means like the, the end of their life, how their life ended up. So it almost is as if these people have died. And so they were either, they could have been martyred We know that that was happening. They could have been in prison. One thing we do see is is that they're they're probably no longer in the church. But what are they called to do? Remember them, consider their faith, and interestingly, what are they to do? Imitate their faith. Imitate. Yes, yes. You said go back to chapter 2 and you're at the wrong book. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, Colossians 2 3 wouldn't make any sense for Hebrews 2 3. We could try to somehow make it make sense, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't making sense. Okay. So think about this for a moment. When you look at somebody's outcome of their life, if you look at the totality of their life, someone who's gone before you. So here, here's the question that you've got to ask. And this is, I think, backwards in your slides. Do you have a godly person in your life whom you look up to? Has someone gone before you that have lived a a full, mature life that's worthy of emulating? That's a question you need to ask. Do you have a a grandparent or spiritual father or mother in the faith? They may still be alive, but they're definitely older than you, they're more mature than you, they're wiser than you, and you look to them and say, that's the person that I consider a spiritually mature person and I look at the totality of their life and I want to be like them when I grow up kind of thing. Now, you may be a little uncomfortable with this whole idea of imitating somebody else. 
But let me just share with you some scriptures that talk about imitating the faith of others, especially Paul. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17 Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So what's the benefit of imitating the faith of someone who's gone before you? Do you have people in our church that we can look back at and say, these are dear saints in the Lord, some have gone on to be with the Lord, that were instrumental in my personal faith? Can, can anybody list anybody that they want to just share that says, and they may be dead now, but it was somebody that their outcome of their faith was, was what helped this church, what helped you in your discipleship, what helped encourage you. To, does anybody have somebody like that in their life? Yes. My sister-in-law, Okay. she brought up her daughter is the way that I wish I would have been brought up because maybe I, things would have been different for me and I wouldn't have made some of the mistakes that I made. Okay. But from everything that she's been through and single mother of four and you know having to raise him by herself and still keep him in the faith and always has a smile on her face you can never tell if she's having a hard day or anything. Mm-hmm. And there's just something to that I wish I could Standing guy, always went to church, always had a smile on his face. He could have the baddest day and still have a smile on his face. Hmm. Kind of looked up to him. Okay. Well, let me just share with you guys. This is just popping in my mind. Having been here at the church for 11 years, I've done a lot of funerals in this church. (laughs) But there have been some funerals that have been harder than other funerals because you knew the person um, and you knew that they were a godly person. I think of um, like Lois Donahoe. Um, she was a godly woman that was a kind of a pillar of our church. I think of somebody like Virginia Messick. I think of um, Laverne White. I think of a lot of, we've had a lot of women, Dorothea Nielsen, we have a lot of women that have died in the past three or four years that you look at their lives and they were godly women. Um, and so I think the number one thing he says here, the the first mark of a faithful church is there's there's a solid foundation of leaders that kind of build the church and they're, 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 they're setting the course, they're walking in the faith, and they're having faith worthy enough for the next generation to emulate them. Okay, So right now, who are you guys? You're the people that the younger generation is looking at. And so in our church, is your faith worthy to be imitated? Yes, Risa. newer faith 
age sure. to older. Yeah, it doesn't have to be chronological age. It can be right. like baby Christian to mature Christian, and they can even be younger than you well, yeah. if they're more mature, like if right. they've been a Christian longer. Yeah. Because my thing was, what I was going to say is, um, even though I've been, I've, you know, had faith in the Lord, I mean, I've known him since teenage years and have haven't, you know, like what she says, had a hard life and everything. Since I've been here, Sherry has been a huge mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And I can ask her questions and, um, and, and you know, she can, if she doesn't know the answer, she can help me find the answer. Mm-hmm. Just different things like that. She's just been... Mm-hmm. Or she can come next door and ask me. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. If she doesn't know the answer. <laughs> Since our offices are right next to each other. Okay. So mark number one of a faithful church is that there are godly leaders that are worthy to be imitated. Okay? Let's look at the second mark of a faithful church. Number two, a faithful church holds fast to the unchanging gospel of Christ. Now, just look at verse 8. This may not, it kind of just kind of jumps out at you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is really a strong theological confession that's been throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Okay? Now, why is the author putting that in there? What's he trying to tell them? Your leaders who you looked up to may be imprisoned, they may be martyred, they may have died. And they may not always be there to teach you and train you and love you. But the one person you can count on and who you should count on is who? Jesus. Okay? He's always be there. He doesn't change. He doesn't die. Even when leaders come and go in your church and time gets tough, um, our allegiance is always to Christ. Now, here's the thing that happens oftentimes in churches. Not always, but there is an inherent danger in what I call the celebrity pastor movement. It can become a grave temptation in many churches to rally around the personality and charisma of the pastor and not in Christ. So what happens when the pastor leaves? Was your hope in him or in Christ? A lot of churches are built around the personality of the pastor. And what happens if the pastor has a moral failing or the pastor gets hit by a bus? Or an example would be like Mark Driscoll if we're going to just list names. I mean, he built an empire with Mars Hill Church, and he had thousands of people, and then, you know, all the allegations, and I don't want to go into all that, but that whole, all those churches and satellite churches, are, they're, they're no longer around, well, and people are disillusioned. Isn't that the same thing with the Pope? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Pope, I'm trying to make this a little bit more personal to even, you can even do this in your local church. I mean, I'm not saying that people come to Emmanuel because of the leadership here, but I don't want that to be the reason. I mean, there, there could be people that say, the only reason I go to that church is because of blah, blah, blah. And what should be the answer of that, the only reason you go to that church? It's because Jesus is Lord, He's the senior pastor of the church, and the Word of God is, is there. And so a church holds fast to Christ in His unchanging gospel not to the celebrity of the pastor. Jude tells us this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
the faith. So let me ask you a question. Is there a changing gospel? Is there a changing faith? No, there's not. This is a confession right here at the end of the book of Hebrews that we've seen about Jesus in the gospel throughout the entire book. So let me just take you on a journey of these confessions that we've seen so far. So go back to chapter 1 about Jesus, who Jesus is and His unchanging nature. He, he sprinkled them all throughout this book. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, he starts off with this. He, speaking of Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Go to chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be the founder of, of their salvation made perfect through suffering. 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken about later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, 12 through 14. <laughs> but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All throughout this book, he's been giving confession after confession after confession about who Jesus is. And now in chapter 13, he just summarizes it and says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all these things we've been seeing are wonderful confessions about Christ. And so here's what a faithful church does. A faithful church holds fast to the gospel no matter what the cost. Easier said than done, right? When it's not popular, when people say, well, Jesus is one of many ways, but he's not the only way. Are you serious? He's the only way? Or when people begin to call you closed-minded or bigoted or narrow-minded or um, throw out all these names at you, or even, you know, we've, we've, we've have, we have a reputation in this town. 
a good one. But there are people that have come to me and said, you know what people are saying out there about you in this church, Pastor Sean? I'm like, what are they saying about me in this church? Well, you guys preach the Bible. That's what they say. They're saying you guys really hold fast to the Bible. You guys are serious about the Bible. And I'm like, well, thank, praise the Lord. That's what we want to be known for. But they look at that. There's some people in the community that look at that as a, you know, like people are like sheepishly coming to me. Like, you know what people are saying in the community about you, Pastor John? That, that, that you really hold fast to the Bible. Like they're a little put off by that. I'm like, well, okay. Um, so anyway, um, but a faithful church holds fast to the unchanging Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and His unchanging gospel, the confession of our faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What about number three? Number three, a faithful church is not led astray by strange teachings. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. The word led astray, there's an interesting word in the original language. It really means to flow away like a winding river, to be like taken like down the river. Um, think about a river for a moment. Think about the flood a few years back. When the, when, the, when the Platte River's flowing normally, you could probably get in there and get in like a little canoe and just kind of meander along, you know, get out at Atwood, come down here. When the flood came, did you want to get in that water? No. What was it going to do? It was going to take you quickly. And so that's the picture here is that if you, you, you can like kind of mess with false teachings just a little bit, but if you're not careful, it can sweep you away like a flood. The next thing you know, you're like being really misled. Um, let me just read to you Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I don't know if you know this, but Christ himself has given gifts to the church in leaders. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers um, this is just a side note, my personal theology. I, I don't think apostles, the office of apostle and the office of a prophet are around anymore because they had to literally see Jesus and be appointed by Jesus personally. I think nowadays in the church, you have evangelists and shepherds and teachers, I think are two different. Um, I, I think that's one role, a shepherd slash teacher. Um, and I can, I can go through all the Greek to prove that to you, but that's not important now. Um, yeah, pastors, shepherds. But regardless of what, of what it is, these leaders are been given by Christ to do one primary thing. And what does it say there in verse 12? To what? Equip. Equip, Equip the saints for the work of ministry. For what? The building up of the body. Equip. We will talk about that in just a minute, but I will I'll, I'll equip. So... It was originally used in the original language of like when you broke your arm and they came and they set your arm and put it in a sling and put it back the way it's supposed to be. It was also used like if you have a fishing net and it got a hole in the net and you mended it back. To equip means like, for example, you work at Payless Shoes, right? Yeah. Do you have to go through training? Yeah. Does somebody have to equip you how to sell shoes? No. Well, yeah. At one point they did. Yeah. Like when you first started, you had to be trained. So equipping is another word for being trained or mentored or um, resourced so that you can do your job. Okay. Does that make sense? So the role of pastors and leaders and teachers is to mentor and disciple and equip and resource and train you, all of you, to be able to be a mature Christian. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. 
And this is the result. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. And what do children in the faith do if we're not equipped, if we're not growing? We're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body build itself, grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Some of those scriptures are not, are they showing up on your sheet or are they cut off on your sheet? Are they there? Okay. So, you can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So let's just, I wish I had a better marker here, but this one's so, what? Yeah, if you can go find one, they're, they're in, you know where they are? And they're in Sherry's closet, like that big closet that Sherry has in her office. So, okay, thank, thanks, Risa. So don't be, don't let anyone deceive you. What does the Hebrews here say? Don't be led away. What did that Ephesians passage earlier say? said that we no longer may be tossed, tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine carried about. Um, this Ephesians passage says, let no one deceive you. Colossians 2, 6-8, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive. Okay, so take captive through what? Philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. To and fro. I have terrible handwriting. To and fro. It looked like from. To and fro. So, okay, so these are things that the Bible, all throughout the Bible tells us. Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't be led away. Don't be tossed to and fro. Don't be taken captive. If that were not true, if that were not a reality, then why would these instructions be given to us in the Bible? And here's a reason why. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul just flat out says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons. Do we have demonic teaching going on right now? Yeah. Okay. Now here's the thing that is deceitful about it. Most false teachers are not going to come in wearing a name badge saying, Hey, hello, my name is False Teacher. They're not going to be outright demonic. They're going to sound, Hey, that sounds, that sounds legitimate. That sounds sort of Christian. Hey, they're using their Bible. But then, what's happening? Oh, thanks, Reese. What's happening is they are slowly 
you're slowly or maybe quickly being led away because they're, they're teaching deceitful things. And here's the problem, okay? There's two things going on in our world right now. There are teachers that are teaching it, and there are people that want to hear it. And if you get enough people that want to hear it, and you're teaching it, the temptation for you is to not preach the word. And so Paul gives this charge to Timothy, a young pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I charge you, he's talking to a pastor here, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and by his kingdom, preach cute little stories about yourself. Is that what it says? No. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not what endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions it's happening in sterling in what way I haven't been to one that, you know, I haven't, but just by a little bit of talking to his wife, they, she was talking about going to Denver to the bigger church and going to the feast that they do down, so I'm, I'm assuming it might be similar to the Lord's Supper, I have no idea, but then she said that they don't practice any of the holidays, Christmas, Easter, nothing like that, I said, and so I said, you don't believe in the resurrection? She says, yeah, we, we preach to them from the Bible, but we don't practice the holidays hmm. because none of the holidays... It's a Jehovah's Witness? They're not. Like they're, they're not, not Jehovah's no. Witness? What church are it's they trying? The, it's the one, they just bought the one down on the corner of Mike and... Uh, oh, they bought the, the, old, the, old, the, old Christ, yeah. the old Church of Christ? Outreach. Yeah, the old church of Christ. it used to be the old... Is it the old outreach? No, Freedom Outreach is in our old building. Oh, okay. But there's an, the Church that of Christ, little, 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 yeah, right there across from um, Cooperating Ministries, like yeah. by down yeah, the street from Sub, Sub, yeah, yeah, that's the Church of Christ. New Beginnings was in there, and they moved out, okay. so there's a new church starting there. Yeah, they just, they've been there like a few months. Okay, I didn't know that. I can't remember what, what they say they're, they're the, the main, you know. Yeah, the, well. And, she was, and then I asked her, I said, well, why don't you believe in Christmas? And she said, she said because it's not that time. He, he wasn't born that time of year. Yeah, and those are second. I mean, those are. I mean, I, yeah, I know some Christians that don't particularly like Charles Spurgeon. wasn't a big fan of Christmas. Right. Um, but I told her I said, well, he had to be born to die. And she's like, yeah, but we just don't. We just don't yeah. practice. Well, here's the thing, guys. Look at what's. Look at what it says. A time is coming when people will not what endure sound doctrine. What does that mean? I don't want to hear it. It's hard. Why is it hard? Because when you follow sound doctrine of a, of a gospel, you go against what society exactly. is preaching. Mm -hmm. And society has taken just about everything in the Bible and said that's wrong. And this is the way you're supposed to be. Supposed to be. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can't, you can't say homosexuality is wrong because according to society that's but, and then they find stuff in the Bible, like what some places do, 
just little itty bitty sections to, to back what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, and here's the thing that they want, they have itching ears and they want, and they have passions that they want to have fulfilled. So they're going to go to a pastor that's going to tickle their ears. And there's a lot of pastors that do that because it's easier. You can get a crowd by tickling ears. I guarantee you. I was a youth pastor for eight Well, for how long was I a youth pastor? For 12 years. That's youth. Pizza, a rock band, and guys and girls mixed together for like a, you know, with strobe lights. Mm-hmm. You probably get a thousand kids to show. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what you could do, but I'm just saying... <laughs> With enough manipulation and enough watered down, you can get a huge crowd. But are you actually preaching sound doctrine and are you preaching the word? Now, it doesn't mean you have to be offensive. It doesn't mean you have to be rude or mean. It just means that you're preaching what the word says. And, and if you go through the word, there's going to be some things, like you said, Dale, that are going to be offensive, that are going to be difficult. And, and some people don't want that. So what is a faithful church? A faithful church does not give in to false doctrine. But notice what else he says there in chapter 13, I mean, in chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So a question, how is the heart strengthened by grace? There's a lot of different ways. But in, 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 I think in the context of teaching and preaching and sound doctrine, your heart is strengthened through the consistent, persistent, and faithful preaching and teaching of sound doctrine in the life of the church. You may not realize this, but when you're under good teaching and preaching, it actually is good for your heart. It strengthens you. It encourages you. It makes you strong. It, it grows you. And when it talks about the heart, it's not talking about the, you know, the, the organ is pumping your blood. It's talking about your, the whole self of who you are. Okay? So number one, a faithful church imitates the leadership of, of spiritual leaders, the, the faith of spiritual leaders. Number two, it holds fast to the unchanging gospel of Christ. Number three, kind of the flip side, it does not get into false teaching or be led away by false teaching. Number four, this is where it gets a little bit difficult I've kind of succinctly put it in a statement, but I want to unpack this because this is where it gets back to the Hebrews weird stuff of Old Testament sacrificial stuff. And we're like, okay, we're going back to this again. Yes, we are. Number four, a faithful church places a premium on cross-centered discipleship. Now you may say, well, what, what do you mean by cross-centered discipleship? Let's unpack verses 10 through 13. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Okay. When he says, we have an altar, what's he talking about there? It's hearkening back to the Old Testament Day of Atonement, the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, who was sacrificed on the altar? 
or what was sacrificed on the altar? Lambs, bulls, goats, all different types of sacrifices. But who's the altar now? Christ himself. Because he's the ultimate high priest. We've been looking at that for months. And he's the ultimate sacrifice. So this is hearkening back to part of the ritual on the Day of Atonement. What was the Old Testament ritual on the Day of Atonement? Well, the high priest would minister in the tent, that is, in the tabernacle. And here's what would happen. There was instructions on what to do with the dead bodies, the burned bodies of those animals. Leviticus 16.27 And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried where? Outside the camp. Their skin and flesh and their dung shall be burned with fire. Okay? Now, here was another thing that you also need to realize. The priest was prohibited from eating from the altar. Okay? So it might have been tempting. I'm burning these animals. Let's like make a steak dinner here while I'm doing it. He, he couldn't take from the sacrificial animals and start feeding himself. The animals were strictly used for the Day of Atonement. They could not be used for food. Instead, the remains, the carcass of the dead animal and its dung and everything was to be put outside the camp and burned with fire. Now, why outside the camp? It was unclean. It was, it was a propitiation for sin. Anything that was remaining had to be outside the camp. It had to be removed. Okay? It had to be... And, and, it, was, and it was gross, wasn't it? I mean, who wants stinking, rotting flesh and... I mean, the burnt part of an animal. You don't, I mean, you want it as far away from the camp because what's going to happen? It's going to start to smell. And so outside the camp on the Day of Atonement, what would be out there? A, a pile of dead animals being burned outside the camp. Okay. Yeah, the smell of that. Now, I want you to notice the comparison that the writer of Hebrews does. He's saying there's a similarity here. Old Testament, the priest took that burnt animal that was sacrificed outside the camp. But what does he say about Jesus? Look at verse 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you remember Jesus carried his cross where? Outside of Jerusalem. This showed that Jesus endured the shame of being crucified as a criminal. He wasn't allowed to die in Jerusalem and had to be outside of Jerusalem because what was he accused of? King of Jews, blasphemy. Um, and crucifixion back then was reserved for criminals, scum of the earth. Okay. John, this is in John 19, verses 17 through 20. He went out. He went out of where? Jerusalem. Bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others on either side of them, and Jesus between them. 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So when Jesus takes up his cross and carries his cross and goes outside the gate, it's, this, I'm a, it's, it's bearing the reproach of what the cross is all about, a criminal. And he's outside the gate. He's dying in shame. He's dying in reproach. He's dying a criminal's death. He's, 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 he's banished from the city of God, Jerusalem. But notice what the writer says for us to do. Just like the animals that were out there burning and just like Jesus was crucified outside the gate, what does he say there in verse 13? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and do what? Bear the reproach he endured. Which means that When you take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you die to self. You die to your desires. You die to the world. You you crucify your desires. That's what cross-centered discipleship is. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 14, 26 through 27? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, he's not telling us to literally hate our parents or our family members. But what he's saying is, when you become a Christian, you give up all, and whatever that means, to follow Christ outside the camp. Now, that's discipleship. Because what is a cross-centered life of discipleship going to bring? It may bring reproach, just like Jesus did. It's going to put you outside the gate of culture. We will always be different as strangers in a strange land. When you follow Jesus in discipleship, you are not going to look like the world. You're going to be radically different. You're going to be a disciple of Christ who has different affections, different desires, different motivations, different lifestyle. You're going to be outside the mainstream of what culture looks like. You're going to be like Christ. You're going to bear the reproach of Christ. You're going to take up your cross and follow Christ. Now, contextually in this audience, remember, let's go back to who's the original audience? Who is the writer of Hebrews addressing? Christians who were Jewish that were tempted to go back to Judaism. So when he says, let us go outside the camp, what was the camp for them? Going outside the camp meant for them severing all ties with Judaism. Even if that meant their family and friends and everything that brought them comfort and identity. It's not an easy calling. He's saying once and for all, Jewish Christians, you cannot stay with Judaism. It's not true discipleship. It's false teaching. You need to go out. You need to get outside the camp. 
you get outside of, of everything that's tying you down to Judaism and follow Christ outside the camp. Now, for us, it means that we, we may need to leave things that are tying us down to this world and go outside the gate, go outside of culture, go outside the camp to, to, to identify with Christ and to take up our cross and follow Christ and die to self and die to culture and everything that would make us more like Jesus. But here's a question. Why would anyone want to do this? What's our motivation to live the cross-centered life of discipleship? Why would we call people to this as a faithful church? Why would a faithful church want to say, Hey, guys, this is what you signed up for. We're going to be radically different than culture. We're going to die to self. We're going to bear the reproach of Christ. And we're going to hold fast to a gospel and people may hate us for it. Yeehaw, sign me up for that. That sounds like a fun church. Why would you want to do it? Anyone can lead you away. Okay. I mean, if you've got a friend or something that you've always hung out with, sure. and they're doing something yeah. that isn't, you know isn't right, yeah. they can easily they can. tempt you to do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, he gives us the answer in verse 14, and I think it's number five. What does verse 14 say? For, because we have no lasting city but we seek the city that's to come. So here's number five. It's tied to going outside the camp. Number five, a faithful church lives for our future home, not the temporary pleasures of this world. Now he says there what? We don't have a city, but we seek one that is to come. Now, we've seen this before. Go back to chapter 11. Remember the hall of faith? Go back to chapter 11 for a moment and talk about Abraham. Chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. Interesting. To go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He went out, left Ur, paganism, followed the Lord because he was looking for that city. Look at chapter 11. Look, just go down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For his people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." Abraham was looking for the city. These Old Testament saints were looking for the city. What happens in Revelation chapter 21? The city comes down from heaven. It's the future home. And here in chapter 13, when it says they seek a city that's to come, that word seek is a strong word. It really means to have a strong and passionate desire to seek heaven. Now, here's the thing that often happens. Let's just ask the question, is living 
a life as an obedient, faithful disciple easy? No. And what's the temptation when you live for Christ? The temptation is to lose focus, to get sidetracked. But where should our focus always be? It's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus because of what awaits. Now, what have we seen what awaits us? Let's just go back and look at some things we've already seen here. Chapter 4, verse 11. The different metaphors. Here he's talking about a city. We're seeking that city. In chapter 4, verse 11, it talks about rest. A Sabbath rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That whole idea of almost the promised land. Chapter 9, verse 15. What are we waiting for? Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Sabbath rest, spiritual rest, eternal inheritance. 11.14, we just saw that, a better country. 12.23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Chapter 12, verse 28, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So here's what the cross-centered life means. It means the cross-centered life of discipleship means that we're pilgrims like Abraham, who left everything behind of this world in repentance to follow Christ. Now, what may come when you do this? Marginalization, persecution, shame, reproach, and possibly even martyrdom. But should we expect anything less when this was the path of Jesus. So let me ask you a question here. Are we as a church calling people to this type of life? Or are we watering down the demands of the gospel for the lies of the prosperity gospel? I don't don't think we're given the prosperity gospel, but my question is, are we honest as churches, as Christians, as leaders, of the upfront cost of discipleship and following Jesus? Or do we just kind of tell people, just ask Him in your heart and He'll give you a better life and just, you know, try Jesus out? Okay. And I don't want to to use names or cast dispersion on anybody, but the question is, a faithful church seeks discipleship, the glory of Christ, holding fast the gospel, being willing to suffer for the gospel, looking forward to heaven, even if even if, if that means that we have to suffer for it. And I guess churches need to prepare people for that. But what do we often hear in our culture? What's the prosperity gospel say? Okay. But what are they telling people? I won't preach about hell because people already feel guilty. Not if you're Joel Osteen. Yeah, I think it was my post, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to list names out there. I'm just saying that 
if we're not careful, we can, and I'm not saying, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the entire Christian life is suffering and martyrdom and persecution and marginalization and there's never any joy and then we're always going to be attacked. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we need to be prepared for that because by the very nature of the gospel, it is offensive and we're called to go outside the gate and we're called to keep our eyes on heaven and those things may come. We just need to be prepared for that. Uh, they may or may not, but we need to be prepared for that. Um, I would rather be prepared for that than not and just kind of sell people a bill of goods and say, you know what, when you become a Christian, you'll have all your dreams come true. Everything will be going great for you. You'll get your money. You'll get your house. You'll get your mortgage paid off. You'll get the million-dollar boat or whatever it is. You'll get all these things and, you know, just sow your seed into my ministry and then, you know, you'll be good to go. And I'll keep getting richer and richer on the pyramid scheme and I'll have my own private jet someday. I mean, I mean all that kind of stuff that you hear from, from stuff. Okay. Why, why is that, Jerry? That's, an, that's a, I mean, it's a good statement, but why, why do you think that? Because of, uh, if we're watering it down, we're not really having our hearts and our minds on God. Hmm. If we have our hearts and minds on God, we're listening to someone who preaches the gospel, who stands up for what the gospel says, and we're happy because we know it's true. It says so right here in the Bible. They're not, we're, the Bible isn't watered down. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't water down. Mm -hmm. Very and good. That's, that's what I think anyway. Well, I'll stick with it. All right. Number six. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. You can preach the right gospel all the time and all that. And I think the real joy comes from when you live the gospel like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can hear, I can come and listen to all our messages mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, exactly. The, the joy comes in obedience and in relationship with Christ. We don't get stuff, we get Christ. And He should satisfy. Now, He gives us blessings, but if we come to Him to give us blessings, we're coming with the wrong motivation. We come to get Him. And like, and like Joe said, the joy is in living out the radical life of obedience to Him and that discipleship. And when a whole church does that, it's a great testimony. Not just a few people here and there, but an entire church living that type of lifestyle has amazing impact on a community. So, All right, number six. A faithful church is not ashamed to worship together consistently. Look at verse 15. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God, that is, fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. In other words, we should not be ashamed to acknowledge His name. Lips, publicly, 
Um, Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Hosea 14.2 Take with your words and return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Now, the way this is worded in the Greek text believe, leads me to believe that He's pop, most probably talking about the whole idea of coming together in a corporate worship service. Um, now, you can obviously individually worship God with lips, but I think the way it's worded here is it's talking about not being ashamed to gather together and acknowledge Christ publicly through our singing, through our to- being together. Because what was happening, go back to chapter 10 for a moment. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, what was going on? Chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What was going on in the life of the church? There were some that were ashamed to affiliate with the gathered church and it had become their habit not to be a part of the church. And so he's, he's chiding them and basically saying, you know, you're forsaking assembling together. Don't do that. You need to get back in the fellowship. And so I think here he's saying, listen, don't be ashamed to assemble together, to come together as a church, to sing publicly with your lips the glories of Christ, to teach, to preach, to love, to encourage. Don't be, don't be ashamed to, to worship together consistently. When you come to the Lord's Day, you don't want to um, you don't want to hide what you're doing. No, nobody should walk into our worship service and wonder who it is we worship. Nobody should walk away from worship service like that was real confusing. Who who are they talking about? What were they reading from? We want to be very clear in our worship, but I just think that in our day and age right now. We need to take advantage of the freedoms we have to boldly worship together because those days may, I'm not saying God may do anytime soon, but you know, there's brothers and sisters around the world that don't have the public freedoms we have. They, they do the same thing that, we're, that we do. They just do it underground. And they may have more boldness and joy and, and, and things like that than, than we do that have the freedoms to do that. Okay, So number seven. We may get done. We may not. A faithful church sees worship as meeting the real needs of the body. And I would say by extension, the community. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices this is the whole idea of practically meeting needs. Now, when he says share there, do you guys know what Greek word that is? I'm going to write it on the board. You might know what that word is? Koinonia. What do we often think of when we hear the word koinonia? That means fellowship. Okay. Do you realize, I don't have time to do this, almost every time that word koinonia is used in the New Testament, it's almost always attached to sharing of your material possessions. It's almost always attached to somehow giving away 
not just yourself, but, but some type of possessions, um, material possessions. And that's the word he uses here. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Now, that could be time, talents, and treasures, but usually that, that Greek word oftentimes refers to sharing possessions. It reminds me of the early church in Acts 2.44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Galatians 6, 9 through, I mean, Romans 12, 13, skip it. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so a faithful church Let's think about what, we're, what we've talked about so far. So number one, let's, let's remember. Number one, you imitate the faith of, of godly leaders. Number two, you hold fast to the unchanging gospel. Number three, you're not led away by false teachings. Number four, you live the cross-centered life of discipleship. Number five, you're focused on heaven and not the pleasures of this world. Number six, we are not afraid to worship together publicly corporately number seven here we literally and physically and practically and concretely meet each other's needs in very practical ways Um, we're, we're ministering to one another we're meeting each other's needs we're sharing life we're sharing possessions we're sharing we're and notice what he says there these sacrifices are pleasing to god do you realize your act of ministry your act of giving your act of service your act of sharing is an act of worship it's a sacrifice it pleases god when a church shares and does good to one another and to their community, it's an act of worship that pleases God. Now, number eight, I was tempted to skip it, but I feel like we need to deal with it. Um, here's number eight, because it's very personal, because I'm, I'm your leader and I'm teaching on how you're supposed to treat me and how I'm supposed to treat you, okay? So kind of awkward but here we go it's in the bible number eight a faithful church submits to the spiritual leadership of its elders and prays for them okay we see this in verses 17 through 19 obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you pray for us But we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So question, easy question to answer, but let's talk about what the scripture says. Has God given spiritual men as elders to lead the church? Yes. Where do you find that, Pastor Sean? Well, let's take a journey. So let's get out of Hebrews for a moment, and I want to take you on a journey through the Bible, and we're going to read Acts in 1 Timothy and Titus, and I want to show you why Emmanuel has elders. Because I can't take for granted, I mean, I know a lot of you have gone through the new members class. We talk about elders. Some of you were here before my time when the church transitioned to elders. We have elders, but from time to time, it's good just to stop and say, biblically, why are we doing what we're doing with elders and spiritual leaders the way, the way we do them? So Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, this is not necessarily teaching on elders per se, but we see a principle here about leadership in the church. Okay, this is the early church. 
in Acts. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so what's the problem? They were distributing food on a daily distribution. Some people, some widows were getting overlooked. So there was a logistical issue, a managerial issue, a benevolence issue. It was getting too much to handle to meet the needs of everybody. And so the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, okay, the twelve, the leaders said, it is not right that we should give up, what? Preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, they weren't above serving, but what were they saying? Listen, there's a lot of needs in this church, and there's a lot of people that need to be ministered to, and they need to be ministered to. But God has called us as the leaders to primarily minister the word. Doesn't mean we won't serve, but we've got to minister the word. If we don't minister the word, the church is not going to be healthy. So let's come up with an answer. And here's the answer they come up with. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, we don't necessarily see elders there, but what do we see? We see a principle. There's a lot of things that happen in the life of a church that need to happen. Needs need to get met. Physical needs need to get met. And so can one person do everything? No. The spiritual leaders of the church are called primarily to a preaching, teaching ministry. Now, we can make the argument that what they chose here were deacons. It doesn't necessarily say that, but that's a lot of people's interpretation is that these were the first deacons. These were men set aside by the leaders to take care of the physical needs of the church because the, the, the elders or disciples, if you will, their primary responsibility was preaching and teaching. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. This is on... Paul's first missionary journey. Yeah, Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas go to a bunch of churches and they um, are, are doing ministry. They're planning churches. They, they are on their way back to their home church in Antioch. And Paul gets stoned in Lystra. Um, and then right before they go back, let, let's pick up in chapter 14, verse 21. This is the tail end of their first missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What did Paul and Barnabas do when they planted these churches? They appointed elders in what in every church because paul wasn't going to stay so did he say he appointed one elder or he appointed elders a plurality of elders so elders were appointed even in the early church by paul now we don't appoint elders today because we're not paul we can't just go in and like say i'm going to appoint 
Paul could do that because he was an apostle and this was the starting of, of Christianity. Okay, Acts chapter 20. This is at the end of Paul's stint in Ephesus. He'd spent a long time in Ephesus, about I think it was about three years, and he's calling for the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he actually preaches a sermon to them, the only sermon we have in the book of Acts to believers, and it's to the leaders. But Acts chapter 20, verse 27 through 32. Paul's telling the elders, um, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, and this is, the advice, this is the encouragement he gives to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, I'm going to teach you guys some Greek tonight. Is that okay? Okay, he's made you overseers to do what? What does yours say? To care for. Does anybody have a different translation maybe? Does anybody have the word shepherd? Okay, care for, shepherd, keep watch of the flock of God, of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now go back up to chapter 17, I mean, chapter, chapter, uh, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called who? The elders of the church to come to him. Now we have three different words here, don't we? He called the elders... He calls them overseers and he tells them to care for. Okay. This word right here is where we get our word. It's presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. An elder. It, this was taken from the Jewish world when you had male leaders in the synagogues that served as the spiritual leaders in the synagogue. And so Paul borrows from the Jewish culture and uses the word presbyteros to talk about elders. This, is, this is refers more to a person's maturity. Okay? But he also calls them overseers. This is the Greek word episkopos. That's where you get a word episcopalian. Episkopos, to oversee, oversee. This is from the Greek culture when they had city leaders that would be like governors and, and leaders. And so he borrows from the Jewish world and the Greek world to talk about those who are leaders, those who are the ones that cast vision. Um, this is more about character, maturity. This is more about leading. But then what does he tell them to do? He tells them to shepherd. We have another word. Poimea, that literally means to shepherd or literally to pastor. So I'm going to make an argument, and I think it's pretty airtight, that there is the office of overseer, the office of pastor, and the office of elder. He's talking about the same person. So whether you call them pastors, elders, overseers, these are the spiritual leaders, male spiritual leaders of the church that God has set apart to lead, to oversee, to shepherd, to care for, and to be spiritually mature. And there needs to be a plurality of them, not just one. He, he appointed elders. He called for the elders of the church, not just the elder. Okay? Now, let's go to 1 Timothy and look at the qualifications. So this is what they are. They're leaders... They're overseers, they're shepherds, 
They're, they're spiritually mature. Who do these guys have to be? Well, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're not going to get done tonight. That's okay. We'll, we'll finish up next week. Um, I said Lord willing. And he's willing us to go on this teaching on elders. I think it's important. 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, now remember, who was preaching to the elders in Ephesus? Paul. Now, Luke wrote Acts, but Paul used all three terms here. Okay? He, he used overseers. He called for the elders. He told them to shepherd. Okay? Here in 1 Timothy, he's giving qualifications. The saying is trustworthy. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of what? Overseer, i.e. shepherd, i.e. pastor, i.e. elder, all the same. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he, share, how will he care for God's church he must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil we could spend a lot of time talking about the qualifications but you see qualifications there there's one these are all character qualifications except there's one task that the elder has to do be able to do and it's in verse two he has to be able to what teach not only is he called of god to lead to shepherd to be spiritually mature to meet the qualifications but he's got to be able to teach and and i would by an extension he's got to be able to teach and preach if he can't teach or preach god's word he has no business being an elder he may have great qualifications he may be spiritually mature and he may care for people but if he can't teach or preach he can't be an elder it's one of the primary responsibilities of an elder is to teach Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy 5.17. And I will just tip my hand that this passage of Scripture was the central, the central Scripture for my doctoral thesis. And so anything you want to know about this passage of Scripture, I've probably read everything there is to know about it. But this is the one passage of Scripture that I think explicitly links leading with preaching which is what the primary, the primary goal of an elder is to lead and preach. Okay? And he leads through his preaching. And he preaches through his leading. Okay? So let's look at 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders, okay, elders who rule well, that's not a good translation, ESV, I'm not sure why they use rule there. That may be a little Presbyterian influence there, but that, yeah, I'll tell you what the word means in just a moment. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. Labor in it, okay? So let the elders who... That word rule really is the Greek word proestemi. It it means the, the one who stands before. So the elder 
stands before the congregation, not only in his preaching, but he stands before them in the sense that he goes before them as a trailblazer. He's a leader. He is a, um, he, he's, he's one that they look to as the spiritual leader. Um, and he has to do that well. And how does he do that? He does it by laboring. And that word really means the point of exhaustion. What does he labor in? Preaching and teaching. Okay. All right, let's go to one other passage here. Let's go to Titus 1, 5 through 9. More qualifications for an elder. Titus 1, 5 through 9. Paul's writing back to a particular pastor, Titus, who was left in Crete to do something. And this is what Paul says. That's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and do what? Appoint elders in every town as i directed you if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer oh wow that's interesting i thought he just said elders now he says overseers it's the same it's the same the same office for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or a greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give sound instruction, I mean instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So he's got to have the character qualifications to be able to lead, to teach, to preach, to pastor. Now, in Philippians 1.1, you see all three offices in the church, or all three people in the church. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Who are the three groups? The overseers, elders, the deacons. So deacons are not elders. They're, they're separate. There's two different groups. So you've got overseers and deacons, and then the saints, the, the church. Okay, now, with all that as a backdrop, let's go back to Hebrews and see what he tells us to do. Verse 17, obey your leaders. Now, that, that's another strong translation. Does anybody else have anything besides obey? Do all of your translations say obey your leaders? Have confidence. Have confidence. That's probably a better translation. Is that the NIV? Yeah. Okay, the word there really means to trust which is the same thing as have confidence. Trust your leaders. Okay. And then it says submit to them. And again, you can't, I can't make you submit. Just Husbands, you can't make your wives submit. The very nature of the word submit means that you voluntarily lead yourself to the spiritual authority of another. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you. That word over you is the same word for um, to, to lead that was in 1 Timothy 5.17. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Okay? So all throughout the scriptures, we've seen the role of an elder, the responsibility of an elder, that you're to submit to the elder... But here's a scary verse for me. What is my role as your elder and the other elders in Emmanuel? Look at what it says there in verse 17. Let's back Hebrews 13, 17. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What's my job? To watch over your souls. That scares me. You know what that word keep watch means? Let me give you Peter O'Brien. He's, he's, a, he's an Australian scholar. He's written a lot of good commentaries. He says the verb keep watch means to go sleepless. And from the literal meaning, it takes on the sense of being alert and watchful. Godly leaders are diligent and tireless. They look after the lives of all in their care, but particularly those who are negligent or prone to spiritual laziness who fail to recognize the importance of fellowship with other believers. So I'm supposed to go tireless, sleepless, and watching over your souls. And to boot, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to have to give an account of that one day. (laughs) Depends on what's going on in the life of the church. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews expresses the gravity and eternal consequences of pastoral leadership and that shepherds will stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account and how they cared for the souls of those entrusted to their care. Now, let me just say something here about Obeying your elders. A congregation's response to pastoral leadership does not rest in blind obedience. Instead, obedience or submission to pastors must come in conformity to the scriptures they faithfully preach and the godly lives they exemplify. So what I mean by that is if I'm not preaching the word and I'm not living a godly life, You don't have to follow me. But if I am preaching the word of God and I am living a godly life, then what does Paul or what does the writer of Hebrews say there? Do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Nobody's going to be happy. Okay? Let me give you one other passage of scripture on pastors 1 Peter 5 2 through 3. And we're kind of running out of time here, aren't we? Shepherd the flock. Okay, there's that word again. Shepherd the flock. Be a pastor to the flock that is among you. Exercising what? Oversight as an overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Earlier in that passage of Scripture, I didn't put in verse 1, but verse 1, Peter says, I appeal to you as fellow elders. So even in that passage of Scripture, he uses all three words, elder, shepherd, so presbyteros, poime, and episkopos, all in one passage of Scripture as well. So we're talking about the same people. So what is your responsibility as a church member? I don't know if you knew this, but Hebrews says to submit to pastoral leadership in a way that makes it a joy to serve you and not a burden. And I will just leave it at that. (laughs) But there's one other thing he says there in verse 18. Pray for us. So here's a question. How can you pray for us as spiritual leaders? Well, he gives the answer there. 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. How would you pray for us specifically here? 
in this passage of Scripture? It says, wait a minute. Did I go past a, a screen here? Oh, here, yeah, there we go. How do we do this? That we would act honorably with the clear conscience in all things. In other words, that we would display lives of integrity. Okay? Now, the question is this. He, he wants us to do that more earnestly as well. How can you pray for us as leaders more earnestly? That's just a question to hold out to you. So here's the last question, and we'll get to, this, we'll get to the answer next week. How can... How, all right, so the question, the final question is this. He's given us a list of what a faithful church looks like, all these different things we've just looked at. The question is, how do we do this? How do we remain faithful? How do we persevere in the face of trials and temptations and persecutions? And the answer comes in verses 20 through 21, which we'll get to next week, which is the benediction, which is the final huge piece of the entire book where he draws all the themes of the book together in one final benediction. That's how we can do what this book is calling us to do. So we'll have to wait till next week. We'll do the benediction and the final greetings. I said we were going to try to get done tonight, but we, we did not. So um, I'm sorry, guys. There's not time for questions or comments or snide remarks. But if you want to, you can keep those. We'll, we'll make more copies next week. But I will say this. If you want to hang out afterwards and ask questions, I'm more than willing to do that. Um, let's pray and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for um, really a, a blueprint we see here of what a faithful church should be. And Lord, we know by, by, by no stretch of the imagination are, are we a perfect church, are we a faithful church in, in all the ways you want us to be. But Lord, we need to pray for that and strive for that, Lord. So I pray that we would be a church of spiritually mature godly leaders that are worthy of imitating. The Lord, we'd hold fast to the unchanging gospel and have Christ as our supreme treasure. The Lord, we would not be given into false doctrine, into every wave of cunning and deceitful things. Lord, I pray that we would have that cross-centered discipleship. I pray that we would joyfully come together on worship and not be ashamed to publicly gather. Lord, I pray that we'd be active in meeting the needs of each other in this church. Lord, I pray for us as elders that we would joyfully serve this flock. And Lord, the church would joyfully um, follow our leadership. Lord, I know at times that it may be difficult or hard, but Lord, um, help us to have humility and, and wisdom in how to, how to lead this church. Um, Lord, thank you for the, your blessing upon this church. Thank you that um, you've blessed us with just a wonderful congregation of people that are hungry for the word, uh, that, are, that are willing to, to learn and to, and to be cooperative and to love. And to, Lord, we have a long ways to go to be the church you want us to be. But Lord, we thank you for the evidences of grace we do see in the life of our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.